And there you see the President of the United States, Joe Biden, um, not commenting. After classified documents from his time as VP were discovered in a private office. Good morning, everyone. There you see us <laughs> in this sort of pandemic era boxes because we're in separate studios. We're having a little technical difficulties with our main studio this morning. So we'll be back in just a moment. But it's good to see both of you. How are you? Did you all make Hi. it? We were all just rushed up the elevator. <laughs> Don documented it. So <laughs> check your Instagram later, folks. He's pretty funny. Great yeah. technical team who got us on the air. That's yeah. for sure. All right. So let's get to the show. We've got a lot to cover. The Justice Department now in possession of those materials that I just spoke about, what we're learning about how they came to light and the key differences with the Mar-a-Lago case. Also this morning, Rudy Giuliani has been subpoenaed amid the special counsel's investigation into Trump's fundraising after those efforts to overturn the 2020 election. Also this. A relentless and powerful storm slamming into California and leading to dramatic rescues. The threat is not over. See and hear what millions are up against. We'll get to all those stories and much, much more. But first, we're going to start with President Biden's lawyers finding a small number of classified documents during his time as vice president in his former private office. That happened last fall in November, they found it, as a matter of fact. The documents were discovered in a locked closet at the Penn Biden Center in Washington. And Biden appears to be cooperating with the National Archives, who referred the matter to the Justice Department for further investigation. Now, Republicans have seized on the revelations, but to be clear, there are distinct Distinctions between what we know about this and Donald Trump's hoarding of secret records at Mar-a-Lago. Here's what the president told CBS 60 Minutes back in September when asked about that. When you saw the photograph of the top secret documents laid out on the floor at Mar-a-Lago, what did you think to yourself looking at that image? How that could possibly happen. How one, anyone could be that irresponsible. So to start us off, we're going to bring in now CNN's senior legal affairs correspondent, Paula Reed. Paula, good morning. An unusual turn. How did this happen? Unusual indeed, Don. Good morning. Well, these materials were discovered by a lawyer for President Biden on November 2nd. We learned that they were in the process of closing out a Washington, D.C.-based office that Biden used when he worked as an honorary professor from about 2017 to 2019. Now, they say they uncovered fewer than a dozen classified documents at the office, but it's unclear what they pertain to or why they were in this office. Now, when these materials were discovered, the White House Counsel's Office notified the National Archives they took possession of the materials, we're told, the following morning. But Attorney General Merrick Garland, he has assigned the U.S. Attorney in Chicago to review this matter and conduct a damage assessment. Now, Don, it's interesting that he is one of only two current Trump holdover U.S. attorneys still serving. The other is the Delaware U.S. Attorney who is leading an investigation into the president's son, Hunter Biden. Now, in a statement, Biden's attorney says they are cooperating with the archives and the Department of Justice. But there's a lot more we still need to know about how these materials ended up there, how certain they are that these are the only ones, and of course, how secure were these documents while they were in this office. Okay, so Paula, speaking of differences, can you lay out the differences between this and the Mar-a-Lago document issue? It's a great question, Don. So based on what Biden's team is saying, they are setting up some key differences from the Trump case. The first one is just the volume of materials that we're talking about. At this point, the Biden matter, we're dealing with less than a dozen documents versus the hundreds 
in the Trump case. Another big difference is cooperation. Biden's lawyers say they immediately cooperated, they turned over the documents they discovered, and that they continue to cooperate with the Justice Department. When it comes to Trump, there was months back and forth where he refused and ignored the government requests and really only handed over many of the documents when subpoenas were obtained. The other big difference at this point is obstruction. Uh, Biden is not under investigation for potential obstruction. Trump is, as well as being under investigation for potential violations of the Espionage Act. So at this point, Mar-a-Lago appears to be a much more complex investigation, a more complex set of legal issues. But on the Biden matter, it's only come to light in the past 24 hours, and we'll continue to report it out. Mm -hmm. Former President Trump is also under investigation for possibly mishandling that classified information. This is going to be politicized. I imagine it has already been politicized by those on the right and the former president. How is he reacting? Well, the former president, he posted on his Truth Social platform asking, quote, when is the FBI going to raid the many homes of Joe Biden, perhaps even the White House? These documents were definitely not declassified. Now, that term raid, that is a term that his legal team has been chastised by a federal judge for using because he is referring to a duly executed search warrant uh, that was carried out over the summer after information was obtained that documents were being moved. But interestingly, I spoke with a member of his legal team last night, and and they think the Biden case actually helps their defense. They say, look, uh, this just illustrates the problem with overclassification in government. But they're also watching these two cases very closely. They're looking for any differences in the handling of the two probes. As they argue, the Justice Department has made the Mar-a-Lago matter more contentious than necessary. But but we'll see. Again, we've been covering Mar-a-Lago for a lot longer. And Don, if it's one thing I've learned over the past seven years of covering various very high-profile officials who, who may or may not have mishandled classified information, these things are never simple. Yeah, we have to see how this investigation plays out, but it's certainly an unforced error by the President Biden. Thank you very much, Paula. We appreciate that. Caitlin? Yeah, now to that investigation into former President Trump and his efforts to overturn the 2020 election, not the documents investigation. CNN is now learning that his former attorney, Rudy Giuliani, has been subpoenaed in a grand jury investigation of Trump's fundraising right after he lost to Joe Biden in November of 2020. The special counsel has asked Giuliani to turn over records about the payments that he received around that time as he was filing several lawsuits on Trump's behalf. CNN's Caitlin Polance joins us with her exclusive reporting on this. Caitlin, what are we learning? And, you know, now that Giuliani has been subpoenaed, what does it mean about where this investigation is going? Well, Caitlin, what this shows is this is part of this notable investigative move of them looking at the criminal conspiracy, the special counsel's office now wanting to make sure that they're digging into top people. Giuliani was a really central player in a lot of avenues that we know the January 6th investigation is looking at. And one of the things that came out in reporting this is our understanding now is that prosecutors are prioritizing trying to get records from Giuliani related to payments he would have received after the election as he was pushing these uh, false election claims and as he was trying to work on Donald Trump's behalf as a lawyer, taking these claims into court, even going to state legislatures. And one of the other things we learned is that there were other witnesses since Giuliani received the subpoena more than a month ago that have also been asked about payments 
disbursements from the Save America PAC, which, which Donald Trump had set up after the election uh, to raise money and to distribute it. And so what this shows is it's pretty serious financial investigation that is happening under the special counsel's office right now around January 6th. Yeah. And one aspect of this is you know, Trump famously does not pay his attorneys. It's been something that has been a factor of the many investigations that he's faced in impeachment hearings. Did Giuliani get paid throughout all of this? Well, Caitlin, I know your reporting uh, at the time was that Trump was hemming and hawing quite a lot about how he didn't want to pay Rudy Giuliani for any of the legal work he was doing after the election. Giuliani actually asked the campaign to be paid $20,000 a day to do this work. They said no. That has come out in the House Select Committee investigation. But the FEC records that we have found show he made about $140,000 into two different companies for travel imbursements both of those coming from the Trump campaign and a related super PAC. Caitlin. All right, Caitlin Pollins, thank you so much. This morning, an update on what could have possibly happened to a missing Massachusetts mother. Her name is Anna Walsh, and prosecutors are revealing new clues, including a bloody knife that they found in the basement of the home that she shares with her husband and their three young children. And that's not all. Sources tell CNN investigators are going through her husband's Internet history. And when they did that, they found a search for, quote, how to dispose of a 115-pound woman's body. Her husband is charged with misleading investigators as police officers dig through trash and look for Anna Walsh's possible remains. Our Jason Carroll reports from outside of the family's home. Brian Walsh smiled for a brief moment as he was being transported to a Massachusetts courthouse on Monday. Brian, what do you want the public to know about this case? The 47-year-old arrested over the weekend, charged with misleading police in connection with his wife's disappearance. He pleaded not guilty. Do you understand that charge, Mr. Walsh? Yes. His plea comes as more details in the case took a disturbing turn. Law enforcement sources tell CNN investigators now suspect the 39-year-old mother of three may have been killed after finding Brian Walsh's internet searches, including the phrase, how to dispose of a 115-pound woman's body and how to dismember a body, according to two law enforcement sources briefed on the investigation. Prosecutors describe what they say police found after searching the Walsh's home. Blood was found in the basement area as well as a knife which also contained some blood. Walsh's husband told police he last saw her on New Year's Day. But she wasn't reported missing until the 4th when her workplace said she didn't show up. During the time frame when he didn't report his wife and gave various statements, that allowed him time to either clean up evidence. Prosecutors also say Walsh was not forthcoming about his whereabouts following his wife's disappearance. This after investigators discovered purchases Walsh made at Home Depot on January 2nd. He's on surveillance at that time, purchasing about $450 worth of cleaning supplies. That would include mops, bucket, tops, um, TVEX, uh, drop cloths, uh, as well as various kinds of tape. Walsh's attorney says her client has been cooperating with investigators. Mr. Walsh has given several interviews. We have consented to searches of his home. We have consented to searches of his property. Walsh was already under house arrest after he pleaded guilty to a federal crime last year, selling fake Andy Warhol art. Thank you. Jason Carroll, thank you for that reporting. Don. All right. 
Let's talk about what's happening in California. Flooding, mudslides, debris flows, a dangerous storm battering California, again, forcing thousands of people to evacuate and putting 34 million people, a tenth of the U.S. population, under a flood watch today. And the threat is not over. The storm is moving south from central California toward Los Angeles and Ventura counties. At least 14 people have died in the storm over the past few weeks, according to Governor Gavin Newsom. And we know that one driver died on a flooded roadway in San Luis Obispo. And a five-year-old boy is missing after being swept away in the flood waters. Rescuers searched for the child for hours, but even the search had to be suspended because the weather became just too severe for them to continue. Crews answering hundreds of calls, including this one in L.A. County. I want you to look at how high that fast-moving water is on that SUV right there. Look at that. Firefighters pulling a 70-year-old man out of the window to safety. And this is in Monterey County. Look at that. The man being pulled up to that helicopter says that he and his wife were just about to evacuate, but before they could get out, their home became an island. We were looking out the window, and we saw the bridge go. And when that bridge went, there's no way out. And in Montecito, someone you may recognize, Ellen DeGeneres, becoming an impromptu weather reporter. Looks a little bit dangerous there, Alan. Careful. Look at that. And here's a reminder of what can happen when the ground is just this saturated. That big tree just came crashing down. Look at that right there. All right, let's go to Fresno now. Boulders the size of cars came crashing down in a rock slide, shutting down this highway. We have a reporter on the ground in California. That is coming up in our next hour. Now to a first on CNN, some new reporting as the Biden administration is set to roll out new measures in a desperate bid to curb the surging migrant crossings at the southern border. They include a virtual one-stop shop for migrants to help find information about legal pathways to come to the United States and a new resource center in southern Mexico where migrants can get information about how to apply for that. CNN's Priscilla Alvarez is live in Mexico City where President Biden is set to hold this big summit today, of course, with the leaders of Canada and Mexico. Priscilla, what are we expecting in these changes and how realistic is it that they'll actually help change what's happening on the southern border? Well, Caitlin, White House officials have reiterated time and again that they think countries across the Western Hemisphere should share the responsibility of managing migration. And that is the message that they're going to send today at the summit. And they're going to do that through a couple of programs. So as you mentioned, there is a virtual portal that they plan to set up where migrants can apply for legal pathways, not only to the United States, but also to Canada and Mexico. Then two, they're going to set up a center in the southern part of Mexico in Tapachula that is a transit location for a lot of migrants where they can also get information on how to apply to come to the U.S. or to Canada. Now, these are options that migrants may have, but it's up to them whether they use them. And frankly, they're often urgently fleeing deteriorating conditions in their home countries. So it is going to be incumbent on these programs to meet those needs in the immediate term. Now, a senior administration official does tell me it is an experiment and they are up against smugglers who feed misinformation to migrants. But the hope is that by providing these uh, two measures that they can make it easy and accessible to migrants to apply for legal pathways. Caitlin. 
of all of this, there's also what's happening in Brazil. I know we saw the White House responding yesterday as President Biden actually spoke to the Brazilian president on the phone. Was the former president of Brazil still in the in the uh, Florida hospital? How did that call go? And what did the White House make a point of saying as they read out that call to reporters? Biden expressed his unwavering support uh, for the president of Brazil, and he also invited him to the White House, an invitation that uh, President Lula did accept. This is something that has also been hovering over this summit. The three leaders came out with a statement yesterday, and Biden, as you mentioned, did talk to Lula. He said uh, that he provided that unwavering support. He condemned the violence and attacks, and Brazil expect this to be another issue that comes up today when the three leaders meet. Caitlin? Yeah, and they made a point of saying President Lula won that election. Priscilla Alvarez, thank you for the great reporting. Some good news to share with you this morning. He is back in Buffalo, getting stronger, making really amazing progress. A week ago, DeMar Hamlin's fate was very uncertain. He went into cardiac arrest on the field during Monday Night Football, but now he has been released from the hospital in Cincinnati to continue his recovery in Buffalo. Doctors say his progress is beating their expectations continuing to regain strength. He's certainly on uh, what we consider a very normal to even accelerated trajectory uh, from the life-threatening event uh, that he has uh, that he underwent, uh, but is making great progress. He, he watched the game on uh, yesterday. Um, when the uh, opening kickoff was run back, he jumped up and down, got out of his, uh, his uh, chair, um, set, I think, every alarm off in the ICU in the process. Um, but he was fine. It was just an appropriate reaction to a very exciting play. Jumping up and down. Can you believe it? Doctors say it is still too early to say what caused his cardiac arrest last week. More tests are needed for that. Also this morning, I don't know, there was maybe a football game last night. I, don't, I didn't watch anything. <laughs> but it, uh, Georgia fans are celebrating because they have just won their second straight national championship. With the play action, Bennett looks down the middle. McConkey's wide open. Touchdown, dogs. Unfortunately for TCU fans, it wasn't even really a game. The Bulldogs crushed TCU 65-7. to Georgia's quarterback, Stetson Bennett, accounted for six touchdowns, four passing, two rushing. It is the first time a team has won back-to-back national titles since the Crimson Tide did it in 2011 and 2012. But what a game, Poppy, that was. Sorry. <laughs> sorry. Sorry. There's always next year. Yeah. No, we'll see. We'll see. Next year, hopefully, we'll be there. It was funny, you know, watching. A year ago, we were actually at the game. I took my dad. We were in oh, Indianapolis. Yeah? And now, of course, this year, we were watching it from home. And uh, You can't you know. win all of them. You guys no. win a lot of them. You can't win all of them. <laughs> We'd like to win most of them, though. <laughs> yes. This morning, we'd just like to get back to our studio so we can sit <laughs> side by side. So we're working on that. But next, recently returned Disney CEO Bob Iger with a message for employees that you got to go back to work like the office. And many of us live to eat. A new study shows you how to eat to live longer. Details next. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Disney CEO Bob Iger telling employees they must work from the office four days per week starting in March. The pandemic hybrid schedule is about to be a thing of the past. CNN's chief business correspondent Christine Romans joins us now with the details on that. Good morning to you. So he's back to the office, back to the office. This was in an internal memo? Yeah, this was. And by March 1st, let me read to you what Bob Iger, who is 
The new and the old CEO of Disney had to say he's back after retirement to try to turn this company around. He says this, as you've heard me say many times, creativity is the heart and soul of who we are and what we do at Disney. And in a creative business like ours, nothing can replace the ability to connect observe and create with peers that comes from being physically together. So he wants people in the office four days a week starting March 1st. You've heard heard other companies move in this direction. Paycom wants their employees in the office full time. Vanguard uh, saying that the hybrid schedule of, of three days a week, that not everybody was doing that. They want people in three days a week. I will say this Disney mandate of four days a week is a little more than a lot of companies, big companies have settled on two days or three days a week. And I think it shows you what the conversation between bosses, the tension between bosses and and workers will be in 2023 as they try to get to a more normal schedule of in-person work. That's the Disney chart. You can see the company's stock is down about 40%. So Bob Iger coming back, trying to turn this thing around. But here is the tension, Don, the push-pull. You have CEOs like Bob Iger, David Solomon at Goldman Sachs and others who want to get back to more pre-pandemic kind of work uh, work balance. But you have a lot of people who say uh, their commute is not efficient. In-office work is not productive for them. Their life works better with three or three days in the office and two days at home. So we'll see how the lev- who has the leverage in 2023, Don. See, it's interesting because I tend to agree with them, but a whole lot of people don't agree when they said three days. It's enough yeah. for them. I like being in the office. So thank you, Christine. Appreciate You're welcome. It. And now we are also back in the studio. And if you were about to eat breakfast this morning, you should listen to this because what you choose to eat might help you live longer. There's a new study that was just released, and it details what kind of eating patterns can keep you healthy and decrease your risk for serious diseases. Our CNN medical correspondent, Dr. Tara Narilla, is here to share the results of this study. So I'm assuming it's not uh, Don and I's favorite food, which is fast food, Chick-fil-A, Taco Bell. <laughs> no, it is not. It's been way too long since we had McDonald's delivered to the set. Yeah, so what is it that actually does help you live longer? Yeah, so this is really an interesting study. It was one of the largest and longest studies to look at basically what types of dietary patterns might be associated with a decreased risk of dying. And so we keep emphasizing this, but what you put in your mouth actually matters. So they looked at around 75,000 women, 44,000 men. They followed them for about 36 years. They gave them a food questionnaire every couple years. And they found that those who had the highest adherence to four different healthy dietary eating patterns could have up to a 20% lower risk of dying. They also found a lower risk of dying for cardiovascular disease, cancer, neurodegenerative disease, and respiratory disease. So again, really just more and more information we talk about this a lot, about the power of nutrition. Do you have the yeses and the noes? Like, so what should we definitely not yeah. eat? Right. So in general, and this is what's interesting, w- one of the great things about this study is that it highlights the fact that there's flexibility. There's not a one-size-fits-all fit- approach. And really what you want to find is something that's going to be sustainable for you forever. And this looked at four different dietary healthy eating patterns, but they all really have similar things involved. So fruits, vegetables, legumes, whole grains, less you know saturated fat, processed food, added Ooh. sugar. So very similar in their patterns, more 
plant-based, so less meat, less red meat. Um, but in general, again, I think we just need to emphasize that it's never too late to start. So I have see a lot of patients who are older. How am I going to change how I eat? You can do it at any point in your life. It's about conscious decision-making when you sit down to make those choices. Mm-hmm. It's never too early to start. I have young children. We talk about what a healthy plate looks like, how to read nutrition labels. Um, but And also just to emphasize that we really need more nutrition training in medical school, in schools. Nutritionists need to be part of our practice. It's so, so important. Yeah, it's great information also as everyone's doing their New Year's resolutions. Correct. Doctor, thank you so much for sharing that with thank us. Thank you. Well, we have some big news straight ahead if you're worried about paying off those student loans. Also, there's some really significant news coming out of Russia's war in Ukraine involving Moscow's struggles on the battlefield. We have details for you. That's next. Just into CNN, a new proposal this morning from the Biden administration designed to make student loans more affordable. It includes raising the threshold for repayments. It comes as the broader loan forgiveness announced by the president in August remains tied up in court. Let's go to Sinan Sunland Sarfati uh, with the details now. Sunland, good morning to you. Who would get help with this new plan? Well, Donna, it mainly targets low and middle income borrowers. These are people who are enrolled in the loan repayment plans that are tied specifically to income. And the Department of Education actually estimates that's roughly 8 million people this could affect. People could see potentially huge savings, monthly payments cut in half or even potentially paused. Now, this proposal revives the exist- revises the existing proposal. It sets a higher threshold for repayment. Uh, single borrowers making less than $30,600 per year would not need to make any payments. And that's an increase from the current threshold at $24,000. And for those making above the income threshold, they could still see some savings too. The undergraduate borrowers above that threshold will be capped at 5% of their income. That's half of the current 10%. And the Department of Education would also stop charging monthly, unpaid monthly interest and would shorten the time it takes for some smaller loans to be forgiven. Now, this would apply to current and future borrowers. But importantly, Don, there's no timeline yet for when this would go into effect. This is a regulatory change. If it's if it's adopted, borrowers could potentially, though, see the relief later this year. All right, Sunlin, thank you very much. Well, this morning, the United States and Ukrainian officials tell CNN that Russian artillery fire is down as much as 75 percent from the wartime high. Officials say the cuts may be a sign the prolonged and brutal battle has had a significant effect on Russia's weapons stockpile and the Russian forces may be regrouping and trying to pinpoint where Ukraine is going to launch its next major offensive. Warren Lieberman joins us live from the Pentagon this morning. I think that the big question means and then what? It's interesting timing also, Warren. Uh, Oren, that, that this comes as Russia had called for that ceasefire. Absolutely. A ceasefire the U.S. believes was not intentional, or rather not a, a, a real desire for a stoppage to the fight. It was uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin trying to appeal to the Christian faithful and trying to show that it was Ukraine violating the ceasefire. Aside from that, this is an indication with this dramatic decline in artillery fire that something has clearly changed within the way Russia is fighting this war. The question is what? From the wartime high of 20,000 artillery rounds per day down to about 5,000 rounds per day now. Russian military doctrine, the way Russia fights its wars, calls for a barrage of artillery fire and then essentially ground troops go in and clean up or mop up what's left. So why this significant difference? And that's what the U.S. is trying to figure out, according to U.S. officials. 
officials. They have talked for a long time about a shortage in Russian precision weapons, less so about the conventional ammo, just like artillery fire. Maybe the U.S. officials tell us this is an indication that Russia is beginning to run low on its vast stores of artillery after 10 months of fighting and with no end in sight. Ukrainian officials say, look, we've also hit a number of Russian weapons depots, so this may be making a dent, or, Poppy, they may be regrouping for uh, future Russian operations. Yeah, that's a big concern, too. Oren, thank you very much for the reporting from the Pentagon. The first school district in the nation has just sued social media giants, blaming them for the harm that mental uh, the mental health of kids. We'll discuss all of that next. Seattle Public Schools, which is the largest school district in Washington state, is now suing major social media companies behind TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and Snapchat over their impact on youth's mental health. In a 92-page lawsuit, the school district claims that social media giants violated Washington's public nuisance law and has, quote, been a substantial factor in causing a youth mental health crisis with higher and higher proportions of youth struggling with anxiety, depression, thoughts of self-harm, and suicidal ideation. The district says that the wait lists for mental health services were astronomical, requiring significantly greater and longer-term funding to address the issues that have been caused, they say, by social media use. In a statement sent to CNN, a Meta spokesperson responded, saying that it continues to pour resources into ensuring that young users are safe online with tools to support teens and families, including letting parents limit the amount of time that their teenagers spend on Instagram and also age verification technology that helps teens have age-appropriate experiences. The other companies have not yet immediately responded to requests for comment, but joining us now to talk about this major lawsuit are two parents and two amazing reporters, CNN's Audie Cornish and Erica Hill. This is really remarkable in the sense of they say that they want damages here. They want them to stop creating the public nuisance, to award damages, and to pay for prevention, education, and treatment for the harm they say is being caused by these companies. You know, I was reporting over the summer um, in Los Angeles. We were talking to the superintendent there, and we brought in some students to ask any question they wanted. And the first question they asked was, can we get more mental health counseling and resources in our school? So students are very much aware of their needs. They have different ideas about mental health, and I think some of us around this table grew up with, and they are expecting some support. And, you know, it's interesting when you sue, sometimes Sometimes you can get information, right? We saw this. You see this with lawsuits all the time. You can compel executives to speak. You can get papers and documents out. You can bring things into the limelight. And I think that's something that this school system is trying to do. You have two teens. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> we heard that. Right. I'm not, the discussion in our house now, our kids are um, four and six, is my husband is like, they're never using these. But that, and I'm on board with them, but yeah. that's not realistic. You're confronting the age when they do use them. Right. What are the biggest red flags to you from this? So what I think is interesting, and I would say especially for my 16-year-old who's yep. a sophomore in high school, in the high school as opposed to my middle schooler where they're not allowed to have their phones during the day. Everybody has a device because now everything, especially since COVID, is done online through Google Classroom, whatever it may be. But in high school... All of these apps that they need for school, their scheduling app, the way their teachers communicate, this is actually happening on their phone. So they have their phones throughout the day. So they have access to all of these apps. And they do, as teenagers, they text, but they also communicate through Snapchat. They communicate through TikTok. I mean, I love it when my son sends me a cute 
cat or dog video yeah. coming through TikTok. But there's always a moment where I think, oh, wait, but he's on TikTok. Right. The hard part, I think, is limiting that time. And so what the school district is pointing to is, and I think we all know, the more time we all spend on social media, it feels like it eats away at your brain. Yes. And your soul. How do you, right. And your heart. And you're right. And it is, and it is leading to these issues, which as Audie points out, I think is phenomenal that kids feel so empowered to say, hey, I need these resources. One of the things that I think is interesting, Audie, in this lawsuit, I was trying to understand what the crux of the legal argument was. Yeah. It's Section 230. It's a law from the 90s that basically gives a free pass to social media companies and said, you're not the publisher of the content. You didn't think of it. You didn't create it. You're just a platform for it. So you're not liable for it. Well, I mean, this is a first-of-its-kind lawsuit. Well, I, in reading the lawsuit, we noticed they're not saying that it's that this would be in violation of this clause mm-hmm. you're talking about in the Communications Decency Act. They're saying that uh, these companies are directly yes, responsible should. for the content. should be interpreted differently. Yes, because of the way they promote it, the way right. the algorithms work. So they're, they're yeah. getting at something very specific. The other thing I want to mention is a few years back when the so-called Facebook papers came out, because a whistleblower in, introduced a lot of documents into the public, they did have documentation showing that Instagram executives, for example, knew that there was harm, especially to young, uh, to young women, but that they didn't do anything about it. So this is, I suspect something like this will come up in this. Yeah, exactly. And that, and that, and that is what stood out, that when we heard from Frances Haugen, I believe it was 2021, when she was talking about that they knew, but they chose, she was basically saying they chose profit over what they were seeing in terms right. of what Instagram mm-hmm. were doing. And the lawsuit isn't saying, it's not about the third-party content. Mm-hmm. They're saying it's the way that you're delivering these apps to children and the way that you're sucking them in and basically getting them addicted to them. That's where you're... In terms of the lawsuit, you're violating. It's a public nuisance yeah. violation. So it's they're not targeting. just us as parents being like, right. "This seems bad." Yes. It's yes. like, no, no, they know it's bad. Obviously, they're targeting them, right because they want them to stay on longer. And it's we, sure. obviously we need to study social media because it's so new. We haven't figured out, as you know, Miss Attorney, the long-term, the long-term effects and the laws and all of that. But I mean, I think this, I think Sinisha has a point. I know he's right. But it's because how do you implement how, that? Well, I mean, you do what our parents did. I would say, but you know, but. Ed has an iPhone, and, right. and my mom would say, well, if Ed jumps off a bridge, are you going to do it? I mean, well, isn't it sort of that. up to the parents to say it no? Is. I think you're right. It is up to the parents. And, and I think it's every parent's, every family's individual decision, right? Do I limit the amount of time my kids can send their phones? I have, I have limitations on their phones. The reality is my kids know how to get around them, and most other kids do, too. Wow. The other issue, I think, is, you know, there's been a big push for years. I remember when my, when my older son was probably in fourth or fifth grade, this wait until eighth campaign, which you may have heard of, it's, it's trying to encourage parents to wait until their kids are in eighth grade to give them a smartphone. Love Let that. them have, you love it, but you know what? I have to say, my friends who did it, it didn't work because every other kid has a smartphone. And so remember what it's like to try to text on a flip phone? It's mm-hmm. AAA. You're trying to find the letters. And kids are, unfortunately, left out because the way that kids communicate is through their smartphones, whether it's text or something else. And they're learning in school yeah. through. Also, Don, you go out without your phone for a week and see how my, you're like, <laughs> yeah, in the I'd morning like on the internet, too. like I'm still in bed. <laughs> so like, obviously people uh, get addicted to their phones. Media. He's not like all over. No, I'm, I'm not. I'm 
kind of, I'm over it. Oh, oh, really? Yeah, I, okay. I, I just, you know, it is what over. it is. I think we need it for, for to do what we late. do. I think it's very important, but yeah. I mean, I'm I wish someone would tell me. I'm just adults are asking kids to do behaviors they themselves yeah. oh, cannot right. actually Fair. implement. Totally and finally, remember with cigarettes, after those lawsuits came out, the cigarette companies actually put into a fund, and that fund went to smoking mitigation programs, especially with youth. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's an accident that this lawsuit is also seeking mm -hmm. damages really in order to in mitigate what they perceive to be the damage. Can you imagine, though, if someone said, you got to take away your phone and you can't use it for a week, you'd be like, thank you, or it's, time, it's nap time. It's like, yay. But see, I would not say thank you. I know. would be like having withdrawals. And, and I get it. I mean, my younger, I have younger siblings. They're always on their phones. On and they, use, they don't even text. They use Snapchat to yeah. talk to their friends. Yeah. I will leave everyone with this. Uh, my girlfriend, Chat from Home, they suggested downloading something called the OneSec app. Apparently, it really helps you be aware of how much time you're spending on these apps. So that's on my to-do list. Well this week. I'll add that to my very yeah. long we'll list. <laughs> Along with Call the Orthodontist. I know. Erica Hilati Cornish, thank you very thank much. You guys. Appreciate it. So C-SPAN was having a moment as Republicans fought to pick a speaker. Its cameras roam free to give us a rare view of the House floor, and there was plenty to fascinate us. But now the show's over. The party's over. We're going to discuss. After 15 rounds of voting, McCarthy pulled off the impossible. He got people to watch C-SPAN for an entire week. <laughs> As the House of Representatives was in complete chaos last week, millions of Americans got to see footage they normally would not. That's because C-SPAN was given permission before the voting to allow its cameras to roam across the chamber until a speaker was confirmed. You see, usually the cameras are controlled by the government. They're focused on lawmakers as they are giving speeches or on the dais, every now and then sweeping across the House floor but not usually offering much else. Last week, however, we got a close-up view of what was actually playing out on the House floor, capturing moments that typically you would never see, such as when the holdout Mick Gates was angrily pointing at the would-be eventual speaker after another failed vote, or when this happened. Bobert. Present. Present. That was after Boebert changed her vote against Kevin McCarthy to just present. You saw the cheers, the boos, even the yawns. We could not turn away. It was like watching sports with this play-by-play -play at times. And you saw Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez talking to the far-right Republican Paul Gosar. That's the same Paul Gosar who was censured after he tweeted an anime-style clip of him slaying AOC with a sword. And freshman Republican Congressman George Santos, who was sitting all alone after it came out that he had lied about a lot of his resume, mainly isolated during his first week on Capitol Hill. There was also this moment on Friday night late when North Carolina's Richard Hudson grabbed Alabama's Mike Rogers in the face, just trying to restrain him during that heated confrontation after another failed McCarthy vote. Now that a speaker has been confirmed, C-SPAN has returned to its normal procedure, unfortunately. And as C-SPAN noted last night, their cameras are no longer in the House chamber and they have resumed using the feed from House government-operated cameras. That was the, the best part of last week, was being able to see everything that you could see because of C-SPAN. I don't think this many people ever watched C-SPAN until uh, last week when you saw I was tuned in to Caitlin 
TV 24 hours a day. Caitlin and Tapper, TV 24 hours a day. But, but yeah, it really shows what you get to see when the cameras can. That's can, true. Because normally reporters are in the balcony and they can oversee and they can say, hey, this happened with ABC yeah. and Gosar. But you can't actually see it yourself, which yeah, obviously. I just got frustrated. I'm like, I can't watch this anymore. I'm the, uh, you know. Because I'm it was a, such I'm a chaos? Contrarian. It was just so much. Yeah, I was like, I can't. And I like, flipped on to HBO Max or Netflix or whatever. And I'm like, I'm HBO done. Max. And I was like, keep it in the company. I'll check this out and see what happens. Oh, it's okay. number eight, number nine, number 10. Oh, okay, I'm glad I didn't watch. That was me. Yeah, it was but, a lot of replays. But it's good that the cameras are there. It's good. All right. Okay, so we have to get to California. What is happening there is unreal, but all too real. Rescue is underway this morning as really historic flooding has hit America's largest state. We'll take you to California next. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. It's a mess in California right now. It's very dangerous. And you're looking at those dramatic rescues happening in California. Flash flooding, stranding drivers, mudslide threats, prompting major evacuations there. Good morning, everyone. It is terrifying. It is terrifying. And we have a lot to report on uh, all the situations that's happening there. This morning, it is a dire one unfolding as 34 million people in California are under a flood watch. What they are facing, and we're live in Ventura County for you. Also, classified documents from President Biden's time as vice president discovered in his former private office. Now lawmakers on both sides are responding. Also, a bloody knife, $450 worth of cleaning supplies, and a husband now accused of misleading the police ahead. The new evidence that is now coming to light in the case of that missing Massachusetts mom. We begin, though, this hour in California, where rivers are overflowing, streets are flooding, boulders and trees are crashing down. At least 14 people have died in a series of storms that have hit the state over and over again. Uh, And according to Gavin Newsom, the governor there, there is no end in sight for this threat. Ninety percent of the state's residents are under a flood watch this morning. Ventura and L.A. County is getting hit extremely hard. And that's where a dramatic rescue happened just a few hours ago. Take a look at this. A firefighter on the roof of an SUV as water covers the hood, splashing up to the top of the windshield. That firefighter eventually gets a 70-year-old driver out through the window and begins strapping him in before pulling him up the ladder to safety. And this is just one rescue. There have been hundreds of calls just like this. Pyung Law joins us now live in Ventura, California. Give us some perspective here, right? What is this like? for folks who've Um, lived there for a long time. uh, Let me just give you a snapshot and some perspective uh, of where I am, and that should tell the larger story, Poppy. I'm standing on the 101 freeway, even though it looks like this is a lake, this is a freeway. If you've been in California, you know this is multiple lanes of cars normally, uh, people jammed up with their vehicles. It is a slushy, muddy mess. And so this is one place where uh, the freeway has had to be shut down. There are multiple spots up and down the northern corridor, northern to southern corridor that is completely closed. So sections of California paralyzed this morning because of the intense amount of rain. What rescuers are having to deal with here, even though it's not drizzling now, we are in a lull. It's this. It's this mud that's just 
simply sticky. And so vehicles are getting stuck after the water goes away. There is a river that, uh, you know, that I'm standing above, the 101 freeway above the river, that have completely washed over freeways. That's what the state is dealing with this morning. What we are also seeing, our entire communities being evacuated, the community of Montecito, Poppy, Don, Caitlin, uh, it's extraordinary. People have been told to, quote, leave now. That's the message from the fire department. So a very serious situation this morning here in California. As I understand it, Kyung, record breaking in some areas. And given that, I wonder, is it really safe for uh-huh. folks to leave now? Uh you know, you know, that was the warning that the fire department issued yesterday. What we aren't quite sure of is how serious that is right now in this lull. Towards the end of last night, Poppy, we were told that people needed to hunker down, that they needed to wait because it is, it is this, it is all this mud and sewage. The sewers here, in, especially in Santa Barbara, are completely full, so they're... Uh, you know, this is not a pleasant smell, and it is something that the beach communities are going to have to deal with, bacteria and, uh, you know, that, 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 that sort of infrastructure issue. But um, what the Santa Barbara Fire Department tells us this morning is that they have had seven swift water rescues, 200 incidents, that people need to be very, very careful because if they go into these conditions, they can get trapped and in some cases washed away, Poppy. And, and you are right. Yeah. As far as that record, let me touch on that really quickly. Santa Barbara got more rain in one day yesterday than they normally get in an average month in January. Wow. In a day. Kyung. Thank you to you and your team for being out there in the middle of the 101 that looks like a lake. Wow. Also this morning, the Justice Department is now reviewing and weighing how to respond after President Biden's attorneys discovered a, quote, small number of classified documents in his former office at a Washington think tank last fall. That has prompted the Justice Department to scrutinize this. They are looking into the matter, determining how they are going to proceed. These documents, we should note, were discovered in a locked closet at the think tank that has Biden's name. The White House says it is cooperating with the National Archives and the Justice Department amid lingering questions about what was in the documents, what their level of classification is. Republicans are weighing in on the matter, comparing it to what happened to former President Trump, which was obviously a much larger document discovery. But there are still major differences in the two. CNN's Paula Reed is live in Washington. Paula, this is obviously notable that this broke last night. What do we know about what was actually found and how the White House is responding? All right, Kayleen, to fully understand the story, we have to go back a few years, 2017 to 2019, between the time Biden is vice president before he becomes president. He's an honorary professor at the University of Pennsylvania, and he has an office here in D.C., Well, just a few months ago, while he's president in November, his team went to that office to clean it out. And they say during that time, they found fewer than a dozen classified documents. Now, they say they immediately notified the National Archives and handed over the documents the next morning. The Justice Department was also notified. We do not know, though, what these documents were or how they ended up at this office. We know that the U.S. attorney in Chicago, though, is now reviewing this matter and conducting a damage assessment. And that's interesting, Caitlin, because, as you know, the U.S. attorney in Chicago, he is one of only two Trump-appointed U.S. attorneys who are still serving in government. 
And the other one is the U.S. attorney in Delaware who is overseeing the investigation of the president's son, Hunter Biden. Now, the Biden team says they are fully cooperating with the archives and the Justice Department, but there really are a lot of questions here. One of the biggest questions for reporters right now is, are these the only documents? Is there anything else anywhere else? Because as we saw with the investigation into Clinton emails and classified information and with the Trump Mar-a-Lago probe, what happened with these criminal investigations is they metastasized into political liabilities as more documents kept popping up. Yeah, I mean, there are big questions about the legal aspect here. It's clearly a political headache or is going to be one for the White House. You know, the White House does have questions to answer on this, the DOJ as well. But there are big differences between what is happening here based on what we know now and what is happening with the former president. Can you just kind of lay out what those differences are? You're absolutely right, Caitlin. And based on what the Biden team is telling us, the Biden matter appears to be a much more simple, straightforward matter than what is going on in Mar-a-Lago. First, let's just start with the volume of materials. With the Biden matter, we're talking about uh, less than a dozen documents versus the Trump matter, which is hundreds of documents. Also, this issue of cooperation. The Biden team says they're fully cooperating. Where we know in the Trump issue, we know he refused to cooperate. They ignored the government multiple times and really only handed over a lot of materials when subpoenas were obtained. There is also the issue of what exactly is being investigated. Trump is also being investigated for obstruction, but it's speaking with his legal team. They believe that this Biden matter helps their defense because they argue this is really an issue of overclassification in government records. Yeah, I heard from White House officials overnight saying they believe there's a big difference here. Obviously, that is something that is going to play out. Paula Reed, thank you so much for that reporting. All right, let's discuss now. Joining us is national security and security clearance law expert Bradley Moss. He is a deputy executive director of the James Madison Project. Bradley, good morning to you. Thank you. So um, you heard uh, Caitlin and, and Paula dis discussing this. You say that these are two completely different cases. Can you put that into context for us? What do you mean by that? Sure, Don. And Paula kind of teed it up a little bit there for me. The distinction here is not necessarily that there was the unauthorized retention of these documents. Even a single document is a potential criminal issue. Where the Biden team has diverged here, at least so far, based on what we know from the reporting, is the cooperation and the absence of obstruction in which they have engaged compared to what Donald Trump did. Remember, Donald Trump dragged it out for months to comply with NARA when the first batch of classified records were found. He fought, he fought NARA a bunch in terms of stuff being handled over to DOJ. Then they obstructed the subpoena. They provided the false sworn declaration, et cetera, et cetera, leading up to finally that search warrant execution at Mar-a-Lago in August. That is a clear distinction from what the Biden team here did. They found records. They immediately contact NARA. They turn them over the next morning in compliance with the protocols. That's what you're supposed to do. Where one started as an investigation asking for the documents back and the other one was discovered by the very person who had them, their own people, correct? There is a, that's a major distinction. That's also a separate distinction. Yes, absolutely, Don. And in the Espionage Act provision that a lot of us have always been uh, referencing and that was referenced in the search warrant for Mar-a-Lago, one of the key issues is failure to return the unauthorized retained documents when confronted and sought um, from the authorized government party. That's what happened with Donald Trump. They asked for them back and he was obstructing and fighting them on it. That never happened here with Joe Biden. Now, obviously, if there's more documents to come out, 
if there are if there's evidence of obstruction that does ultimately emerge in the Biden case, that would be a different issue. But so far, it's completely apples to oranges here. Okay, so is there any could he face any sort of consequences for having these these documents, even if he says he didn't know about them? Realistically, no. And by by and large, for the most part, when it comes to unauthorized retention cases, the government doesn't like to bring criminal cases. Usually it's very complicated. They have to have all kinds of classified discovery. It's usually an administrative uh, mechanism once they've secured the documents. Joe Biden is now the president. There's no administrative mechanism to take against him, just like there never would have been one against Donald Trump while he was president. He's exempt from all that. So the only way Joe Biden can really get in trouble here is if he or a staff on his behalf half obstruct the investigation. And so far, there doesn't appear to be any evidence of that. Gotcha. Bradley Moss, thank you so much. We also have new information this morning in the search for the missing mother in Massachusetts. She has three sons. Investigators now say that a bloody knife has been found in the basement of the home that Anna Walsh shares with her husband. Authorities are also focusing on a transfer station in Peabody, Massachusetts, digging through trash that was brought there last week. Investigators have reportedly put crime scene tape outside and around dumpsters that are located in an apartment complex near the home of her mother-in-law. That's not all. Sources tell CNN investigators are going through her husband's Internet history, and they found a search for, quote, how to dispose of a 115-pound woman's body. He has been charged with misleading investigators. So joining us now to talk about this new information that we're learning is CNN's chief law enforcement and intelligence analyst, John Miller. John, you're the reporting on this yesterday about those internet searches and what police are looking at. What have they found so far? Because, I mean, that seems like something that when we were talking about this morning, he's only been charged with misleading investigators, but it seems like there could be more on the way. So the misleading investigators charge is clearly a holding charge uh, because where they're going with this case is building a circumstantial case for murder. You've got blood in the basement. You've got a bloody knife. You've got a shopping trip to buy drop cloths and Tyvek suits. Um, and you have all that the day after your wife mysteriously disappears. So the key here now is nobody likes a murder case without a body. Doesn't mean it hasn't been done before, uh, but it offers a real challenge. So that, that transfer station in Peabody, where they arrived last night uh, in the early evening and have stayed uh, for hours looking for the grid of where the trash that would have been coming from that area would be, um, that's going to be the key. And, you know, they'll spend, they'll spend days there if that's what it takes to see if they can recover a body or, in this case, more likely body parts. How hard is it without her body? They've got the bloody knife. They've got the cleaning supply bills, but no body. So... In New York City, we've had a number of successful prosecutions of very similar cases where people disappeared and they've been able to present to a jury, you know, you have, in this case, it would be the shopping trip, the blood recovered in the basement, um, the knife, which is not only bloody but also broken. Uh, it kind of adds up to, if not a murder, then what was going on? And the alternative explanations in those cases can be pretty challenging. Listen, we do process, of course, innocent until proven guilty. But in these cases, we often find out it is the significant other who is responsible for this. And if you look at all the evidence, I'm not saying the guy did it, but the only this would be, you know, a law and order where it's all ha ha that someone else shows up or someone is being framed. But I mean, that's a lot of evidence pointing towards in his direction. John. 
It is. And you have a lot going on in the background here. Uh, this is a couple that has moved uh, five times in the last seven years. The husband is under house arrest for, selling for his fake. guilty plea for selling fake Andy Warhol paintings for, you know, uh, just under $100,000 on eBay. Uh, so it's a... Uh, there's a, there's a lot going on in the background before this even happens. Before you go, can you, the mother-in-law, why, why are they searching her apartment at places near her apartment? So really good question because Cohasset is over here, the mother-in-law's up in Swampscott, and the, re, the refuse station is an hour and a half north of Cohasset. But yesterday, they came to mother-in-law's apartment and taped off some trash compactors with crime scene tapes, looked at that, and their next stop was the refuse station. According to Brian Walsh, the day after his wife disappears, he goes out without his cell phone and not using a GPS to go visit his mother and gets lost, which is what he says, according to the affidavit filed by police, is what took him hours to make such a short trip. Um, and then you see where that's going from here. So clearly the investigative theory is that rather than Allegedly, if he's behind this murder, place body parts in his own trash. He took them to another location where he would have access, and they're looking to where that refuse would have been taken. Wait, was he still under house arrest and he's leaving? So he's still under house arrest, but he has two windows to pick up and drop off gotcha. the three kids from mm -hmm. school. And this was in one of those the window. windows. They have questions right. about And one I mean, of those when windows. we get back to that circumstantial kind of pileup in this case, yeah. Uh, he was in none of the places he said he was because yeah. they reviewed the videos of the stores and places he said he visited. And he was in all of the places he said he wasn't, like yeah. Home Depot buying, you know, drop cloths and Tyvek suits. Yeah. Thank you, John Miller. Appreciate it. Thanks, John. Uh, this morning, it is day two of the nurses' strike at two very significant and big New York City hospitals. More than 7,000 nurses frustrated with pay, with staffing, have walked off the job. They say that they're being forced to work long hours in unsafe conditions and are unable to properly care for their patients. Our Vanessa Yurkiewicz joins us live again this morning. Back there on the picket line, still, I take it then they have not agreed to this mediation that the hospitals and the state want. Is that right? That's right, Poppy. Day two, still no deal. The nurses back on the picket line this morning, just getting underway. There's a growing sense of frustration here, though, because Mount Sinai has yet to come back to the bargaining table with their union, and they're growing frustrated about that. Montefiore Hospital in the Bronx, however, did meet with the union yesterday, but still no deal. And the sticking point still, Poppy, is this safe staffing. That's the ratio of patients to nurses. The union wants very specific language written into the contract about how many patients can be taken care of by nurses, and they want it enforced. Now, the New York City and the hospital says that they have brought in traveling nurses and that there are no issues inside. However, we spoke to two nurses who were working inside Mount Sinai yesterday and said that they have safety concerns for their patients because of the lack of traveling nurses that they've seen in the hospital that were supposed to be brought in to make up for all the nurses that are out here. The two nurses saying that the ratios are extremely high, three nurses on one floor for 
30 patients. Wow. It should be closer to one to four, Poppy. But the nurses out here telling me this morning they would rather be inside taking care of their patients, but they're out here fighting for the very issue that they feel will protect their patients in the future, Poppy. Vanessa Kavitz live for us uh, right here in New York. Thank you. New details emerging about the shooting of a Virginia teacher at the hands of a six-year-old boy. The police chief in Newport News, Virginia, joins us next. Also this morning, another black head coach in the NFL has been fired after just one year on the job by the same team, the Houston Texans. We're going to talk to Bobani Jones about the fallout and his view ahead. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Welcome back to CNN This Morning. New information about the teacher shot by a six-year-old in school in Newport News, Virginia. Police say the gun used in the shooting was purchased legally by the child's mother. And police also say that the boy took the gun from his home, put in his backpack, brought it into the school. That child is being temporarily detained at a medical facility where he is receiving treatment. Local authorities are still trying to understand how could a six-year-old know how to use a gun and shoot a teacher? How does a six-year-old know how to use a firearm? I don't know that I could give you an adequate answer. I know that I have seen some video games out there that depict it pretty cl- clearly. Um, whether it's a, a, something, it might be a toy at one point, I, I, I don't know how to answer that. I, I, it's just unprecedented. I don't know how to answer that question. That was the chief of police, Steve Drew of Newport News Police. And I, as a parent of a six-year-old chief, have the exact same question. How does this happen? You know, I, I think we started asking that question right after we got the, the radio transmission when the officers responded. Uh, first, we thought there was a, a, an active shooter type situation going on in the school. And when we were able to actually determine what we had, I, I think everybody took a step back and asked that same question. How does that happen? You know, we were able to determine what took place and, and how the firearm got there and, and as the investigation unfolded. But the big question, you're, you're exactly right. And it's a question that we have throughout the department and even with our school system, is how does a young man know how to, to yeah. use a firearm? I want to... I, I say young man, I, I don't mean to interrupt you, but I say young man, I should say a child. We're dealing with a six-year-old, and it's just unprecedented with what we have. Yeah, I hear you. I understand that. Um, you did meet with the teacher, Abigail Werner, uh, and, and I think we're all hoping she's okay. How is she doing? I know she was shot in the hand and then into her chest. That's a great question. Yeah, I, I, I was able to meet with her family uh, on, on Saturday afternoon, I thought that was important. Uh, they allowed me uh, to go up and meet with her. So that was my first conversation uh, with Ms. Warner. Uh, and she was just, it was just amazing to, to get to see her. Uh, her first question to me was, how are my students? And that, mm. that took me back, you know, the mm. humanity. Uh, and then uh, I got to see her again yesterday. I told her about this press conference. I asked her for permission to able, a lot of people have been praying for her and asking how she's doing. And you're right, she did take a defensive wound as she, as she moved back to, to, to shield herself uh, and then the firearm uh, yeah. striking her in the hand and into her chest. So, so striking. She, but even, she is improving and she has a stable condition. Good. And she managed to get all her kids out of that classroom even after she was shot, which I think says everything about her character. But can, can we, Chief, get to the law here? Because we were looking back at the statute in Virginia, and the law in Virginia is this, that it prohibits anyone from recklessly leaving a loaded, unsecure firearm in a manager to, en- to endanger a child 
or allowing any child under the age of 12 to use a firearm uh, without a parent supervision. You, you said this child knew how to use this gun. So I wonder if the mother could face charges here. So I, I think that, that that is certainly a possibility. Uh, I, I've talked to the, our Commonwealth attorney here, uh, Mr. Gwynn, at length multiple times, and, and he reiterated to me as we went over, as, and there's still, you know, we're, we're three and a half, four days coming up since, since last Friday. Uh, as, as the case develops and the investigation goes on, there's a lot of, of, of different angles uh, we still need to cover. We need to check with Child Protective Services on any history. We need to, to check with uh, the school system on any behavioral issues they might have and put those together. There's still 16, 17 children that we want to work with a child psychologist to get some state from what they had. And at the end of the day, when that's all compiled together and the facts and what the law supports, uh, the, the, mm -hmm. the Commonwealth attorney will make the decision if there are any any charges forthcoming towards towards the parents. Two more very quick questions for you. One, what do you know what the child did directly after pulling the trigger? So all I, all I know at this point until we get some of those further interviews, and I don't want to say too much because there's still some people to be interviewed, but I do know you're right. When, when Abigail walked out of that room and she was the last one out, she made sure those kids were out. She turned down that hallway and stopped and turned back to make sure they were safe. There was another school member that went into the room uh, and was able to restrain the child until, uh, until officers okay. and deputies uh, were, were able to take custody of him and escort him out of the building. And do you have any more final question, Clarity, this morning, um, Chief, on how the child got that gun? How they got well, it what in we the know at this point, Sure, what we're able to determine at this point, uh, there's still some things we need to clear up. We've got some information, but we need to clear some of that up. Uh, that, that the child, the gun was legally purchased. It was at their residence. He was able to acquire it. He put it in his backpack and was driven to school uh, by his, his mother that mo later that morning. And then it, at some point it came out of his backpack and, and was concealed on him. Chief Steve Drew, thank you very much for your time this morning. And I'm so sorry that this is what you're having to confront. And all our thoughts with, uh, with Abigail Zwerner. What an amazing woman. She is a true hero. Thank you. Thanks. Kayla. It's really something he probably never thought he'd have to deal with Ever. in this job. Ever. Yeah. Also this morning, in a league where roughly 60% of the players are black, only three black head coaches remain. What the firing of Houston Texans coach Lovey Smith after just one season says about the current state of the NFL. We'll talk about that next. Welcome back to CNN This Morning. Coming up, catastrophic storms in California have caused severe flooding and have forced thousands of people from their homes. We have a live report from the state ahead. Plus, many of the pets that Americans bought during the pandemic are going back to shelters. We'll tell you why. Also, a new report that says children as young as 12 are seeing porn for the first time. What you can do to protect your children, that's ahead. Okay, so another black coach in the NFL out. The Houston Texans firing Lovey Smith after just one season. Smith ended his run on a high note by pulling off a last-minute comeback to cap off a 3-13 and uh, one season on Sunday. But the victory cost the team a chance to secure the first overall pick in this year's NFL draft, which goes to the team with the league's worst record. So Smith is the second black head coach fired in Houston in as many years, and the franchise let go David Culley last year. ESPN's Stephen A. Smith says the Texans have not been fair. The Houston, organ Houston Texans organization 
are an atrocity. They are an embarrassment. And as far as I'm concerned, if you're an African-American and you aspire to be a, a head coach in the National Football League, there's 31 teams you should, you should hope for. You should hope beyond God that the Houston Texans never call you. So joining us now is Bomani Jones, the host of Game Theory with Bomani Jones, which will kick off season two on HBO and HBO Max next Friday, January 20th. I think Stephen wakes up screaming, <laughs> good morning, everybody. Oh, he's ready. Time he's to ready. get up. He's always Listen, ready. But seriously, though, I mean, does he have a point? Because after Lovey Smith took this job last February, you said that you had no reason to believe that this would be lasting. Did you see this coming? Why did you say that? Oh, because the whole organization is a dumpster fire. Like, the thing about it is, I'm not exactly sure who should take that job. Where he says no black person should take that job. I wouldn't recommend a white man take that job either. Now, when Lovey got it, you have to remember where it was going around that they were thinking about hiring Josh McCown, who's a former NFL quarterback whose only coaching experience is in high school. And it looked really bad while the league was being sued for discrimination about its hiring practices with coaches. What then happened is Lovey Smith, who has an impeccable resume, wound up getting the job. But nobody was going to give him that job. and Anybody else was going to give him a head coaching job. So what the Texans are is a job where I think the last two times they've hired black dudes, largely because no self-respecting white man would go take that job. Like, they were down to the people who they felt like had to take the job. David Cully, whose name had never come up in a coaching discussion before. And then Lovey Smith, who probably had his last chance already. So that's how you get here. Why would he take it? it his, this was his last chance? You th- why I mean, would Lovey take this job? It pays better than not being a head coach. Like, like that was the thing. Like when David Cully got it, like why would he take it? Because it pays a lot better than being a receivers coach. But there are big questions about. I mean, they went three and thirteen. Like, I mean, they had a disastrous season. I think they've had four head coaches. They're have been on four searches for this in four years, yeah. right? So it's a whole other conversation about the Houston Texans overall and what a disaster. They are internally, but it does raise questions and put a spotlight on the diversity in the NFL, which we just talked about, you know, when we launched the show and what that looked like and also with Brian Flores. And so I wonder what the spotlight of the takeaways from this are, given his firing. Well, I think we're going to it'll be easier for us to talk about the takeaways after we get through this hiring cycle. There are five jobs that are open and we'll see who winds up getting the jobs, what their backgrounds are and everything else. The thing that happens every year when coaching jobs come around is we effectively wind up having the same discussion every single year about it because the problem is the same every single year about it. But rarely do the individual details matter that much. It's a big, grand, macro tracking issue that gets us to where we are with the lack of coaches of color in the NFL, which is better, I think, now than it was maybe three years ago, probably not as good as it was about 15 years ago. It's only going to change as much as the owners of the franchises actually wanted to change and if they recognize this as a macro-level problem. They did recognize that 20 years ago. I don't think they recognize it as much now, but I think they recognize it more than they did five or six years ago. But it's a, it's, it's a vicious circle, right? It's a, the black owners, black coaches, it's all connected. Well, I think the cycle is very similar to the Voting Rights Act cycle, which is you look up and you think things are good enough to where, hey, we don't need to pay that much attention to these safeguards that we have in place to make sure fairness is there. We can just throw that out. People have gotten better. And the next thing you know, you look up and everything is what it was before. It's the same thing we saw with affirmative action in education. Yeah. Is that That's the point that you get to. So when the Rooney Rule first came in, they should really call it the Johnny Cochran rule because they were afraid that Johnny Cochran was going to take them to court. And ain't nothing scared white people at that time more than the idea that Johnny Cochran was going to take you to court. He was a magician, right? But they put the rule in. And then once they did put that rule in, you saw a lot of black coaches get hired. You saw some changes happen. 
then after a while, gradually, people stop thinking that this is an issue. It slows down, it slows down, then you look up and it's two. And then people look up and say, hey, man, it's only two. And it's like, oh, I guess we got to do something about that. But the individual owners don't necessarily want to have to be the one to do this. They want to hire the guy that they wanted to. I say all that to say, unless somebody's going to take them to court, I don't feel like they'll be truly dedicated to fixing the problem. But I do think that right now, when you look at the ranks, it does look better than it did just a couple of years ago when it was only two coaches. And now it's only six minority coaches. Yes. And one and one of them is an interim coach of the Panthers. Um, What would you do? What would you do instead if the Rooney rule is not working? But the Rooney rule, it's not the Rooney rule that's not working. Well, you talked about it's the, the owners. people. And you talked about the owners, yes. too, right? In the, I mean, remember the Jerry Jones, Washington Post piece, and Don and we, we had the reporters on, and we yeah. were talking a lot, and, oh, yeah. he, and he told the Washington Post, admitted there is more that I could do to really lead change on this in the league. Yeah. Well, I think some steps have actually happened that the NFL doesn't quite get enough credit for. One, there are a lot more black coordinators in the NFL now than they were before. And that's typically the tracking position that gets you to head coach. Now, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but they're disproportionately defensive coordinators, which does not necessarily track to being a head coach in the same way. But I do think we've seen some improvements in the assistant rank. Like, I don't just want to say the league has done absolutely nothing. Like, I think there are people that recognize. But the thing that's going to have to improve and the thing that's going to have to be, I don't know if fix is the right word, the people in charge have to think that this matters. Now, my thought is, They're really bad at hiring coaches. I would turn over every stone if I could. Whatever they've been doing before had not been working. Get desperate enough to call the black and brown dudes. Like, at this point, you got to realize, hey, maybe I'm not that good at finding good white coaches. Maybe I need to try my hand over here with the black dudes. I might be a little bit better at that. I would give that a run, right? If I'm not good at doing it one way, let's just, we'll try anything. That would be my play. Instead, you get the Houston Texans who decide, well, we're going to hire black coaches when? When nobody else will take our job. Yeah. Well, you know the first part you said ain't going to happen. People <laughs> like to hire people who they know. Yeah. But, you know, people do, but also sometimes people like to be the one that had that super-duper bright idea. Super-duper. one to figure it out. Thank you. Bro. You always make us wiser. And you had this whole studio cracking up at your Johnny Cochran. Because <laughs> he's uh, a magician. Not a lot of Texans fans in here. Yet, so apparently... <laughs> Bomani, thank you, friend. Thank you. Uh, Game Theory with Bomani Jones will kick off a second season on HBO and HBO Max in just a few weeks on January 20th. A new report, a very disturbing report, finds that most teenagers by a, a wide, wide margin have seen online pornography before they are 12 years old. What you as parents need to know. Satellite images taken over six Chinese cities have captured the crowding at moratoriums, at crematoriums, I should say, and funeral homes all across China. This comes as Beijing continues its battle with an unprecedented wave of COVID infections following its dismantling of pandemic restrictions. Selena Wang has more. I'm Selena Wang in Beijing. Satellite images show crowds at China's crematoriums and funeral homes as COVID cases explode across the country. The images taken by Maxar in late December and early January and reviewed by CNN show lines of cars waiting outside of funeral homes in six Chinese cities. The images appear to show that a funeral home in the outskirts of Beijing has even constructed a brand new parking area. Now, this confirms what I've seen at crematoriums in Beijing, and it is consistent with Chinese 
social media footage that shows overflowing funeral homes. When I visited crematoriums last month, I saw a long line of cars waiting to get in and yellow body bags piling up in metal crates and workers loading more in. I spoke to families who told me they were waiting for days to cremate their loved ones. All of this suggests China's COVID death toll is far higher than the government's tally of only 37 COVID-19 deaths since December 7th, a strikingly low number. The World Health Organization and U.S. have accused China of underrepresenting the severity of its current outbreak. Selena Wang. Thank you. Sorry. Um, Okay, moving on. It is not exactly a conversation that any parent really wants to have with their kids, but experts say that if you haven't talked to your child about pornography, you probably need to maybe sooner than you think. A new study found that most kids are seeing adult material online by the age of 12, but many of them are actually 10 or even younger. CNN's Athena Jones is here to talk about the talk that parents don't really want to have, but it is an important discussion for parents to have with their kids. And so what is this new study showing about the ages of just how soon kids are seeing this kind of stuff? Well, it's pretty remarkable. It starts early. I think the biggest takeaway is how common this is. You know, a lot of parents think, well, sure, some teenagers are accessing porn online, watching porn online, but not my teenager. Uh, these numbers uh, share a very different story, suggesting it's a lot more common than a lot of parents think. Pornography. Nowadays, it's easier for kids to access than ever. They do see little bits of things popping up on kids' computers at school, even in elementary school. So easy, it is now a regular part of many teens' everyday lives. The numbers are mind-boggling. They're just mind-boggling. That's according to a groundbreaking new report by Common Sense, a nonprofit media company focused on kids and families that found the majority of teens aged 13 to 17 have seen pornography online either intentionally or accidentally. I was pretty shocked to know that 73% of all teenagers in the United States are exposed to pornography. Online pornography is everywhere and kids are accessing it early. The report on teens and pornography based on a national survey of more than 1,300 teens finding the average age kids first saw online pornography was 12 years old with some 15% seeing it by age 10 or younger. About 8 in 10 teens who watched porn said they did so to learn how to have sex, with many saying they felt online porn provided helpful information about sex. But more than half said they had seen porn that included depictions of rape, choking, or someone in pain, making porn a growing concern for parents. The obvious link would be they're using this to determine their sexual identity, to determine what's acceptable, how you um, how you become a sexual human being. And if that becomes what they think is okay, then, you know, this is what this is what they're learning from watching it. Michelle Worcester says she monitors her teen's Internet searches and his text messages. Another issue is just how much porn teens are watching. Of the 44% who said they intentionally watched porn, 71% reported viewing it in the last week. And nearly 6 in 10 said they watched porn once a week or more. And it's not just happening at home or in kids' spare time. 30% of teens who consumed porn reported being exposed to it during the school day, whether at school or while attending school remotely, sometimes even on a school-issued device. Jack West, a high school science teacher in the Bay Area, says schools have a role to play here. 
it's a multifaceted problem that requires a multifaceted approach. So there's there's the parents, there's the teachers, there's the community, and yes, in schools, I think we should be addressing this. And health education or sex education seems like a, a good place for that to happen. Beyond concerns about violent or aggressive portrayals of sex, only a third of teens reported seeing porn that includes someone asking for consent before engaging in sexual activity. We all have to be part of the solution here. James Steyer, Common Sense's CEO, hopes the report sparks a national conversation. Parents have to be more involved and more knowledgeable. Schools have to recognize that this is actually happening in schools and that it's part of sex education and behavioral education for young people. And quite frankly, the industry has got to be held accountable for the fact that they are the gateway platforms for all of this pornography to young people. And one more interesting point in this report, the vast majority of teens say they're watching porn, at least in part, to learn how to have sex. Here's the problem. Teens who watch porn a lot see a lot more violence. And of those teens who watch porn three or more days in the past week, 80% said they've seen porn depicting raping, choking, or someone in pain. And those teens are much more likely than other teens to believe that most people like to be hit during sex and that it's okay, that it's safe to put one's hands around another's throat during sex. And so that, this is a problem. That's their first exposure to it. I'm so glad. I know it's uncomfortable, <laughs> right? But it's so glad you did this because parents need to know what their kids are seeing. Yeah. Parents need to wake, wake up and, wake and, up. and have these conversations. Yeah, Athena Jones, thank you for that. By threatening storms, pummeling California with flooding, heavy rains, and ferocious winds, we have a live report on the ground straight ahead. We were looking out the window and we saw the bridge go. And when that bridge went, there's no way out. More CNN this morning to come after the break. Welcome back. In money this morning, an estimated 23 million American families uh, welcomed a pet into their home during the COVID pandemic. But now many are questioning, well... How expensive it is. The Washington Post calls this a moment of reckoning. Pandemic pet owners realizing just how much it costs to take care of them as work and social lives return to normal. Joining us now, CNN business correspondent Rahel Solomon and CNN business reporter Nathaniel Myers. Good morning, guys. Good morning. I saw this coming, by the way. Yeah. I'll tell my story. Go ahead, though. I'll tell my I story. I want to hear your story now. We, uh, we fostered a dog during the pandemic. The shelter called and said, we're having trouble fostering dogs. That was at the beginning of the pandemic. So we fostered the dog, ended up adopting the dog. But then you couldn't get a dog because mm -hmm. so many people wanted them. Right. And, and the shelter said, we're concerned that what's going to happen is when people realize how expensive it is, that you've got to take care of dogs or work, that they would be bringing these dogs back or right. these dogs would be abandoned. And Right, especially dogs, because so dogs then Don are... got three. Well, I have three, three but I mean, yeah, we they had are very two cute, already. We fostered one and then yeah, ended up adopting yeah, yeah. A, yeah. a senior dog. I mean, I think that's unfortunate, right? Because what, what we know is that pets, especially dogs, are the second most expensive pet to have. Yeah. Some estimates put it at about 1500 initially to get a dog, according to Geico, and then another $1,500 per year. And anyone who has a dog myself included, knows that those costs can quickly add up between the vet bills, both routine and emergency, the food bills, the, the food that you have to spend for them, the toys that you have to spend. So uh, it is unfortunate that we're starting to see some people feeling like it's too much for them. Right. It is. It's a sign of financial distress when folks are bringing their, their pets back to the, the shelters. 7.3% more animals entered shelters last year than left them. And this was the largest gap in four uh -huh. years 
Um, you know, it's a major expense for, for families, and they're feeling it because of rising inflation, and they have to make trade-offs. Yeah, but now it's on these shelters to really bear the cost of this. Yeah, I mean, exactly. I mean, on the one hand, you should argue if you cannot take care of a pet, <coughs> the best thing to do is return it, right? I mean, you don't want to um, not be able to take care of it appropriately or adequately. But yeah, I mean, the same sort of shelters that couldn't, uh, you know, so, sort of uh, couldn't get rid of them initially, they're having uh, people bring them back now. Oh, I know. that breaks my heart. I, I don't want to Send them to Don Lemon's house. I know. Another Why not? I, I, go, I go online. Five more. <laughs> You've got three. Do not give Tim any ideas. Sienna's <laughs> watching. Sienna's dying for a second dog. So really? Maybe. I have one. I've got two. <laughs> <laughs> they're naughty. But if you go on and you look at the shelters now, you see more pictures of dogs yeah. coming in. and it, uh, We got ours from a shelter during COVID. It's been the biggest joy. Yeah. They're the best. Yeah. They're, they're the, the best. Biggest joy. So what you talking about, Willis? Abercrombie and Fitch is back? What? So this is a little more fun than, than yeah. dogs. So Abercrombie and Fitch is back. They reported really strong results yesterday. The stock jumped 9%. And this is not the Abercrombie that we think of. There are no more shirtless male models. You go into the store, you're not going to come out smelling, smelling like, like the, freights, the, the, uh, you know, the fragrance, the fierce fragrance. You can knock everybody else. Exactly. Nobody, nobody wants that. They've rebranded more inclusive marketing Models of all sizes. I see a shirtless, uh, is that the old guy? Yeah, that's the old guy. That's the old guy. Yeah, but this, this, this rebrand worked. It worked. It did. It appears to be, at least according to these most recent results, right, where the company is increasing its guidance, essentially telling investors we actually expect to be doing better than we initially thought. And it's interesting because a lot of companies would like to rebrand, right? I mean, and some aren't able to do it successfully. I talked to the CEO of Rolls-Royce yesterday about their successful rebrand. They've gone from a much older clientele to a much younger clientele with an average age of 42. And part of it is just figuring out what people want. And look, I mean, Abercrombie certainly had a problematic hmm. past, sort of troublesome past, but they've been able to figure out what people want and they're more inclusive. Anything else you and want to share about Abercrombie? Not right now, Don. <laughs> I don't know. Put me on the spot, Don. The documentary on is like so fascinating. It is. On Abercrombie. Okay. So, it's so obnoxious. <laughs> She's mad at me. Don put me on the spot here. They're talking about it. I'm going to find out in the break. Rahel Nathaniel, thank you. Top of the hour, let's reset. Good morning. Parts of America's largest state underwater as millions face a flooding disaster in California. Dramatic rescues underway now as roads buckle, cars submerged in downtown L.A. at risk. We're going to take you there live. More classified documents, another investigation, but this time it's a different president, the current one. What President Biden's team has discovered in his private office, but also why his case is different than the one playing out at Mar-a-Lago. Rudy Giuliani subpoenaed as the special counsel investigating Donald Trump's coup attempt follows the money. Chilling discoveries in the search for a missing mother, what her husband searched online, and what he bought after her disappearance. Deborah Norville will join us live. And a new twist in Russia's war, why the United States is making a significant change involving the weapons it's sending to Ukraine. We have new reporting just moments away. CNN This Morning starts right now. And thanks for joining us, everyone. Obviously, we're going to begin with a dangerous storm battering California again, forcing thousands of people to evacuate and putting 30 Four million people 
under a flood watch. Flooding, mudslides, debris flows, and the threat is not over. The storm is moving south from central California toward Los Angeles and the Ventura counties today. At least 14 people have died in the storms over the past few weeks. That's according to Governor Gavin Newsom. We know that one driver died on a flooded roadway in San Luis Obispo. A five-year-old is missing after being swept away in the floodwaters. Rescuers searched for the child for hours, but even the search had to be suspended because the weather became too severe. Rescuers answering hundreds of calls. The man being pulled up to that helicopter you see right there, he said that he was, there it is, and he and his wife were getting ready to evacuate, but before they could get out, their home became an island. And we're taking to Montecito right now. Look at that. Recognize that face. That's Ellen DeGeneres becoming an impromptu weather reporter. God, Ellen, be safe. That water is really raging behind her. Look at that. This is Ventura County. Boulders the size of cars came crashing down in a rock slide, shutting down this highway. Look at that. My goodness. Kyung Law, that is my word of the day. She joins us now from Ventura County, California. This is a mess, and it's very dangerous. Uh, very dangerous, and parts of this entire state are paralyzed. I'm standing on a major freeway. I'm actually going to keep an eye on this emergency vehicle as it drives by. This is a 101 freeway. If you've been in California, you've probably been on the 101 freeway. It is completely shut down. This is the Ventura River that's normally below the 101. It is crested, and it is now covering parts of this section of the freeway and the mess that it leaves behind. I mean, it's this, this sticky mud. While emergency vehicles can somehow get through it, a lot of vehicles can't. And that is the problem that is facing Southern California right now. That is why this is so dangerous. Uh, just a little bit further north of where I am, you saw uh, Ellen DeGeneres talking from Montecito County. It's the burn areas where there isn't a lot of foliage to sort of grip that ground. And you get this, you get all this mud. So just from where I'm standing, Don, it's really an extraordinary sight to see this major freeway shut down. But again, just even getting up here, Don, there were streets flooded, intersections completely frozen, houses that are pumping out water. This is impacting so many millions of Californians this morning, Don. And Kyung, you're on top of it. Thank you very much, Kyung. Appreciate it. New this morning, U.S. officials tell CNN there has been a, quote, substantive change in the type of weapons being sent to Ukraine as the nation closes in on one year since Russia's invasion. And this comes days after the U.S. announced its largest military aid package for Ukraine to date with new systems that one official says give Ukraine much more capability. Let's turn to CNN anchor and chief national security correspondent Jim Chudo. Jim, good morning. You know all about this. You were there on the ground. Uh, when the invasion happened almost a year ago now. Can you explain what is different about what they're getting now in terms of weaponry? For sure. I, I think it's always important to look at this, not just one weapon system, but the collection of weapon systems over time and what that tells us 
about the battle on the ground. So let's look at these latest parts of this package. Bradley fighting vehicles, I'm going to focus on that in a moment. More capable surface-to-air missile systems and surface-to-surface missile systems. Artillery systems that are more accurate and have greater ranges. That's the collection of things we've seen recently. Let's look at Bradley fighting vehicles in particular, because these are going now. It's an armored personnel carrier, carries troops into battle, but it also crucially has a tow missile. This is an anti-tank missile attached to it. You've heard the reluctance throughout this war of the U.S. and its partners to send tanks. This is not a tank, but it does have the ability to attack and destroy Russian tanks, and that's important. It's particularly important on the battlefield in the, in the east. I'm told by U.S. officials that this is in response to what Ukrainians are asking for, and the U.S. and its partners trying to be responsive to what Ukrainians are asking for now. Can you speak to, Jim, what these changes reveal about the battlefield in eastern Ukraine? It's a couple things. So let's look at that battlefield. Well, one, one thing that's different about uh, out there, it's flatter ground, more wide open ground than we saw, for instance, around, uh, say, Kiev in the early stages of the war. And that, that makes you think World War II tank battles, really, Poppy. And you, you, you got yeah. wide open areas here where you're having an artillery battle and you can have these Bradley fighting vehicles and tanks really go into open conflict there. The other piece of this uh, that I'm told, Poppy, is, is this, and that is that the U.S. is concerned that, that Russia is going to attempt to regroup, yeah. launch more aggressive offensives here, and they want to get the Ukrainians the equipment yeah. they need now to push back against Yeah, that. I think that's what Bob Gates and Condi Rice were warning about. Um, yeah. Jim, thanks very much. Thanks. Also this morning, the Justice Department is now looking into this matter. Classified documents from President Biden's time as vice president that were found at a private office. The special counsel to President Biden, who works in the White House now, says that a small number of documents with classified markings were discovered in what they say was a locked closet at, as by President Biden's personal attorneys as they were clearing out the offices of the Penn-Biden Center on November 2nd. That's right before the midterm elections. It goes on to say that the White House Counsel's Office has notified the National Archives, which took possession of the documents the next day. At a summit in Mexico City yesterday, President Biden ignored shouted questions from a CNN reporter on the classified documents. Democratic Congressman Adam Schiff responded to the news, telling CNN, obviously, if there are classified documents anywhere, they shouldn't be. That's a problem and a deep concern. Another Democrat, Jim Himes, who is on the Intelligence Committee, echoed the seriousness of this situation. Classified information needs to stay in secure spaces, so we'll wait to see the facts. But, uh, you know, classified information needs to be in secure spaces. In September, after former President Trump's Mar-a-Lago residence was raided by the FBI as they were searching for classified documents that he was refusing to turn over, President Biden weighed in, saying this. When you saw the photograph of the top secret documents laid out on the floor at Mar-a-Lago, what did you think to yourself looking at that image? How that could possibly happen, how one, anyone could be that irresponsible. And I thought, what data was in there that may compromise sources and methods? By that, I mean names of people who helped, or et cetera. And it's just uh, totally irresponsible. 
Joining us now to discuss this is CNN's chief law enforcement and intelligence analyst, John Miller, and CNN's anchor and correspondent and host of the CNN podcast, The Assignment, Audie Cornish. Thank you both for being here. You know, obviously there are big differences here when it comes to what we're seeing play out at Mar-a-Lago, what, what we know so far about Biden. Um, but I want to start with what we do know about these documents from Biden so far. We still have questions about what actually was in them, what they look like. What concerns do you have, though, about this situation? Well, the first concern is, I mean, according to the initial statements from the White House, uh, the documents were found by lawyers who were cleaning out the office. Um, generally, when you're going to move stuff from one office to another, you don't send a team of lawyers over. So I think there was some anticipation that there might be sensitive material there in the first place. In the, in the how does this happen category, which is a topic the vice, I mean, the president just raised in his own soundbite, uh, you're in office, you're in government, you have classified documents, but you're starting a file on a certain subject. You have unclassified assessments in there too. They get mixed together because where you're working is okay for classified documents. When I was in the DNI, I worked in an entire floor that was a skiff. Classified documents were everywhere. Then you forget that it's a mixed file and it ends up being moved with other unclassified files. So that's how that happens. Best case scenario, um, they've been locked up in that office and, you know, they are of little consequence because of the small number of them. Worst case scenario is, because this is going to happen, they're going to look at what was the subject matter of the documents. They're going to look at what it pertained to. And if it turns out that at a time when he was not in office, he had classified documents related to China or the Ukraine, mm -hmm. or any of the entities that paid his son, um, you know, millions of dollars as a lawyer during that time, people are going to take that um, politically and run with that ball. And it's just not a good look for Democrats who spend an entire season howling about sure. Donald Trump and classified documents, even though the differences are significant. So, Audie, James uh, Comer, who is the new House Oversight Chairman, said this is a further concern that there is a two-tier justice system. We don't know that now. The question is what this leads to, what the documents were, how it's handled. But there are legitimate questions that the Biden administration needs to answer on this. And it also comes at a time where the situation for Merrick Garland, the attorney general, um, just got a lot more complicated. Yeah. Even though there's a special counsel handling the Trump Mar-a-Lago documents, doesn't this optics-wise and just process-wise complicate things for him? I mean, one thing, I'm, I'm hoping the media sort of has learned a lesson from the Hillary Clinton investigation and the emails on the server and sort of how the media would run with that in terms of comparing comparing candidates, right, and, and saying this is the same thing. Um, president Trump, the former president, is in trouble because of obstruction, yeah. because he took the documents and because he fought the whole way in terms of giving them back, okay? So that's a very... And then says he blanket Yeah, that's uh, a very... And then said that I can de declassify things just by thinking it. So that's a totally different scale in terms of response, and I think that's an important distinction to make. The other thing is that... In particular, this seizure of documents was incredibly, um, I guess, uh, catalyzing for Republicans to make the argument you're talking about. And one of the concessions out of the McCarthy negotiations to Speaker of the House is a subcommittee that's going to investigate weaponization of the federal government, which means regardless of whether this happened at all, there was going to be an interrogation by House Republicans into the FBI, into the IRS, into the Justice Department over a variety of topics, because fundamentally they're now 
now taking the position that the federal government does somehow treat conservatives or Republican uh, politicians differently. I think that James Comer is being um, too, it's, it's James, right? His first name. Yeah. yeah. James yeah. Comer, James Comey. This is, it's, I think he's being too cute by half. To say that it's a two-tier justice system because it was referred to Mer Merrick Garland. They referred it to the Justice Department. Merrick Garland referred it to someone to investigate. So it is Actually, being a investigated. Trump a Trump appointed, to your point. Yes, a, a Trump um, appointed person. In Chicago. So to say that is just, I mean, and, but, and but they have to know better. But that's on balance. Yeah. Um, we're talking about political street right. fighting here that is going to go on with control of the House now um, at a fairly high pitch. And, you know, if you take the pure legalistics out of it, and you get into the optics and the politics, uh, what happened here is going to make it almost impossible to charge Donald Trump with any violation of... Really? Yeah, I said that last night. It, put, it puts Merrick Garland in, in a very odd position. Did they know this was coming? This was November. I said, well, you know, listen, I'm just asking here. Well, maybe Merrick Garland didn't. Everyone's wondering why the, he didn't act. Did the, he know this was coming? The White House knows how to get news out fast and they know how to get news out slow. Uh, the idea that we went through the contratemps of last week and once that was all clear, you know, they announced this uh, probably, you know, speaks for itself in terms of analysis. I'm so interested that you said it helps Trump because I, I was talking to people close to his legal team yesterday and they were saying this is a huge gift to them because they believe, you know, politically speaking, of course, yeah, the obstruction is obviously the big part of the Trump story. He resisted for so long turning them over. But they believe it helps make their argument that it's pretty easy, actually, to innocently uh, and mistakenly perhaps take Documents. Does that actually hold up in court? So it doesn't hold up in logic. <laughs> but does alone, it hold up in court? Let alone court. Um, sure, it holds up in court as an argument, but, you know, the law is clear on, on both. Um, it's just, you know, the balancing act of you've got a special prosecutor, you know, Jack Smith, who's going who's gonna to make a recommendation, and then the attorney general is going to have to make a decision. And these developments have put him in a very awkward place in terms of And this is not the, his the only legal making. trouble. There's the fake electors. There's things going on in Georgia. Yeah. So in context... In, um, in this some is, measure, it's his more minor issue. Exactly. Thank you both. John Miller, Audie Cornish, appreciate it. A mother is missing this morning, and we are now learning her husband did a very disturbing Google search and bought $450 worth of cleaning supplies the day after her disappearance. Deborah Norville joins us live on all of these recent developments. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. So investigators are looking for possible remains of a missing mother, Anna Walsh, are focusing on a transfer station in Peabody, Massachusetts, digging through trash, uh, brought there last week. A source with direct knowledge of the investigation tells CNN that investigators also put crime scene tape outside around dumpsters located in an apartment complex near the home of Anna's mother-in-law. Anna's husband, Brian Walsh, says that he was visiting his mother after his wife's disappearance, prosecutors said in court that investigators found a bloody knife in the basement of the couple's home. And they say he spent about $450 of cleaning on cleaning supplies, including mops, a bucket and tarps. And that's not all. Sources tell CNN that investigators are going through the husband's Internet history and found a search for how to dispose of a 115 pound woman's body. He is charged with misleading investigators. So joining us now, Deborah Norville, the host of Inside Edition, which is, by the way, 
celebrating its 35th anniversary. Congratulations for that. Deborah, it's always good to see you. I wish we were talking about something better. But good morning. Thank you so much for joining us. Good morning. Absolutely. Your reaction to this news, especially in the context of its proximity to um, the place Brian Walsh told investigators he had visited? Yeah, this is um, a case that's developing pretty quickly um, now that authorities are actually having the opportunity to investigate it. The big news overnight, it's being reported that evidence linked to the disappearance of animals was found at that garbage transfer facility in Peabody. That's the latest place where cops have been looking. Across the board, the story that Brian Walsh has told investigators since his wife was last seen by someone outside the family on New Year's Eve, actually about 1.30 in the morning on January 1st, has simply not added up to what the facts are that they're developing. They had had a friend over for dinner. The friend left about 1.30 in the morning. The friend says everything was just fine. Brian Walsh told investigators that his wife had to suddenly go to Washington, D.C., where she worked as a real estate executive on January 1st, and then later didn't show up to work. She wasn't reported missing until January 4th. It's what happened between January 1st and January 4th that investigators are looking at, and they're able to follow the movements of Brian Walsh because he was already under house arrest mm -hmm. for a federal fraud case for which he was awaiting sentencing. During that period, he went to as Prosecutors told the judge in court yesterday he went to a Home Depot where he wore surgical gloves, had on a, a COVID mask, and paid cash for $450 worth of cleaning supplies. That fact really got investigators' attention. They then were able to do a search of the gentleman's home, and that's where they found not only the bloody knife in the basement, but also blood in the basement, presumably Efforts would be made to clean that up. That hadn't happened yet. And subsequent to that, they got the arrest warrant for impeding the investigation because statements Brian Walsh made did not back up to the facts that they had from uh, surveillance that they were doing. What about the Google searches, Deborah? How specific they were when the they Google were made? Searches yeah. The Google search is very troubling. I can't tell you exactly when that Google search was made. That hasn't been reported. This is actually a source that CNN has uh, that developed this information. But there were two things that were troubling to investigators. Not only did he look up, allegedly, how to dispose of a 115-pound woman, he also allegedly looked up how to dismember a body. And this is yet another example of, you know, we've all seen these crime cases where you have to wonder, don't people who are contemplating committing crimes realize the digital footprint they leave behind is impossible to erase. They will be discovered if they have looked these things up. Yeah, that's what we were talking about this morning. The, the fact that those are the searches that have been found here and the evidence. He has been you know, charged but just with misleading investigators. Do you think that's just uh, in order to hold him as they are figuring out more things, learning about you know, the actions he took and where he was in the days after her disappearance? Exactly. And it also puts a pin on any other actions that he might be contemplating taking. As we said, there was blood in the basement of the family home. Um, if you have committed a crime, that is something you would want to get rid of. I was surprised when the prosecutor was detailing the items that were purchased at Home Depot. If these were the actions of a guilty individual, you would think you'd be purchasing cleaning supplies, including bleach or something to actually get rid of any DNA material that may be there. I should note that we don't yet know what the results of the DNA testing on that bloody knife might be, but that's something that investigators are obviously working right now to try to develop. 
Hey, yeah. Deborah, you know, we do these stories and we focus on the clues and who the suspect is. We have to remember there are families involved and friends and loved ones who are waiting to, to find out what happened to this, this woman. And they're all... And those children, know, going three children. Absolute they're, hell right now. Yeah. There are three little boys, and it's interesting. Uh, the woman is, the missing woman is from Serbia, and her mother has granted an interview and says that her daughter called her just after Christmas and asked her to please come to America to visit. She said, I'm 69 years old. I can't move on the dime. I've got to get my medication, et cetera. She now has expressed regret that mm. she didn't um, oh, honor right. that request and get to this right away. Yeah. You're right. There's families involved. Yeah. Thank you, Deborah. Appreciate it. Make sure you Thank check you your lo local listings for Inside Edition. Again, congratulations, 35 years. That's quite an accomplishment. And Deborah, don't think I didn't notice that, that. That Georgia, Georgia hat. hat. I knew you were going to say I know you're a Georgia girl, and I know I see that hat in the background. 65 back on to 7. It was a beautiful thing. A much brighter note. Yeah. I was going to tell you in the break, but Caitlin spotted it as well. No, I trust you. Yeah, I saw it right when you came on. I mean, I was in Indianapolis. No, that was no recovering. accident, Caitlin. You know me. <laughs> thanks, All right, Deborah. Deborah, thanks so much. Go dogs. <laughs> uh, House Republicans approving a rules package for the 118th Congress. Some lawmakers still don't know the full extent, though, of what now House Speaker Kevin McCarthy promised to those hardliners to get that deal across the finish line. A Republican in his conference is going to join us next. The House narrowly approved a rules package last night amid concerns about the concessions that Kevin McCarthy made in his fight to get the speaker's gavel. One Republican voted no as the GOP ultimately united to pass the rules changes, which make it easier to remove the House speaker and harder to raise taxes. It also helps them establish new investigatory committees and could potentially slow ethics investigations. Also, in its first piece of legislation as the new majority, House Republicans voted for a bill that will roll back funding for the IRS that was part of that big social spending bill passed by Democrats last year. It's a messaging bill, though. We should note it's not going to be taken up by the Senate. Obviously, it would not get President Biden's approval. Joining us now to talk about this new GOP majority is Republican Congressman Dusty Johnson, who is from South Dakota and chairs the centrist-leaning Main Street Caucus and has sat on the Agricultural Transportation and Infrastructure Committees. Good morning, Congressman, and thank you for joining us. One big question coming out of this week has been whether or not you and your fellow Republicans have an understanding of the full scope of what was actually agreed to by Kevin McCarthy. Do you feel like you have an understanding of that? I do. I think the contours of this thing have been very well reported. And I get it. This is human nature. If there's a piece of paper you can't see, oh, my gosh, I want to see it. I just got to see it. This is nothing new. Nancy Pelosi two years ago had a very narrow majority, obviously to get the vote she needed. She was willing to have conversations with her members. Okay, hey, you really care about the environment. I'll do what I can get to, uh, to get this bill on the floor. That's what Kevin McCarthy has done. But remember, nothing outside of the rules package binds anybody. Kevin McCarthy doesn't have my vote card. He doesn't have anybody else votes card. This uh, addendum is just really him trying to tell members that he'll he'll try to do what he can to build unity. But why not, you know, release as a piece, a piece of paper, as you suggested, on exactly what he did promise people when it comes to, you know, these really critical spots on certain committees or, or certain promises that he made to these members? Well, let's be clear. Uh, Kevin McCarthy has not promised any specific person, any specific spot on any committee. And I get it. I mean, had the, in hindsight, of course, had they released this thing last week, it would have been old news by now. 
But at some point, this is just Kevin McCarthy being honest with individual members he's talking to about he's going to do what he can to bring their term limits bill to the floor, or he's going to do what he can to bring their uh, balanced budget amendment to the floor. And I know everybody wants to see it because they can't see it, but it's really not any different than what other speakers have done. I mean, did, did we see a list of what Nancy Pelosi, every conversation she had with members as she was getting her votes? We didn't. Yeah, of course. But just because of how remarkable this was and how much it was about the concessions that he made in order to get that gavel. But I want to follow up on what you just said. Kevin McCarthy, you say, has not promised a committee seat to any Republican. Uh, no, that's right. I mean, ultimately, the steering committee, which is not Kevin McCarthy, he gets four votes out of 30 on the steering committee. They decide who gets these slots. Now, there are a few speaker appointed positions, and it's possible in those conversations, somebody said, hey, you know, I'd really like to be on intelligence. And maybe Kevin McCarthy said, you'd be a good fit for intelligence. But overwhelmingly, the kind of committee slots people are interested in, those decisions are made by steering and not by the speaker alone. You say that you like the rules that were passed yesterday. I wonder if you have a concern about the U.S. being at a higher risk of defaulting on its debt, given what we've seen play out so far within your conference. We are $33 trillion in debt. And I know people want to draw this massive distinction between the spending bills and the debt ceiling. I get it. There are different mechanisms. But clearly, the debt ceiling is tied to the national debt, which is, by the way, a clear and present threat to the future of this country. We need to have these conversations. And the idea that, oh, gosh darn it, Republicans won't budge, so we're just going to go off the fiscal cliff, I think that's a little dramatic. I think it's a little extremist. I think what we should do instead is shift the conversation so that it's a bicameral, bipartisan conversation, which is, gang, what are we going to do? to try to bend these spending curves back in the direction of sanity. Uh, I guess, you, so you don't have concerns that the United States is at a higher risk of defaulting on its debt, is that right? Uh, we, there's nothing in the rules package that uh, puts us in a higher likelihood of defaulting. Now, clearly, having Republicans in control of the House is going to mean that we're going to drive a harder bargain when it comes to spending and when it comes to driving the debt ceiling. But there isn't anything in that rules package that makes that a foregone conclusion or even more likely. Do you agree that Adam Schiff, Eric Swalwell, Ilhan Omar, that those Democrats should not be on committees and should lose their seats? I said when Nancy Pelosi did this last Congress, when she started kicking Republicans off committees, that this was going to go to a bad spot. Uh, I, listen, I, I don't think that the speaker should just be kicking the opposition party off of committees willy-nilly. But this is the new normal. This is what Nancy Pelosi has created. I think it is very difficult in this environment now where this is the new normal for Republicans to unilaterally disarm. This is going to have to be uh, a tool that Kevin McCarthy uses in a very targeted and sparing way, or else we're just going to continue the escalation of weaponizing everything in this town. So you're saying he shouldn't abuse that? He absolutely should not abuse that. There are people, I mean, Eric Swalwell should not be on the Intelligence Committee. Th that guy could not get a, a classified rating in the private sector to view sensitive information. He absolutely should not be doing it for the United States of America. He, he has been compromised in a number of different ways. What about your new colleague, George Santos? Does he deserve a seat on any committees? 
listen, if I was the speaker, I wouldn't put George Santos on committees until we had a, a deeper and more full understanding of exactly what went on during his campaign. He should be uh, referred to the Ethics Committee. There should be a full and complete uh, investigation, and, uh, and he should be held accountable for what he's done. The fact that he's a Republican doesn't keep me from saying he needs to be held accountable for whatever he's done wrong. Thank you for that. And do you believe that uh, the new Republican majority is going to look into President Biden's retention of classified documents, this revelation that we found out overnight? Yeah, that was incredibly unfortunate. The fact that we have had uh, now at least a couple of administrations in a row not handle classified documents well is a problem. And it is the kind of thing I think you're gonna see the Republican House ask a lot of questions about. Maybe we need uh, new procedures in place. The idea that somebody could just take a folder with classified information and walk out the door with it, uh, that is really problematic. James Comer, who is chairing the House Oversight Committee, raised these questions yesterday saying, does this mean that the White House should be raided? Obviously referencing what we saw happen at Mar-a-Lago. But can you acknowledge that based on what we know now, there is obviously a difference here when it comes to the volume of classified material that was taken to Mar-a-Lago and what President Biden had as vice president and also how it was handled in the sense of actually cooperating to return those documents to the federal government? Well, first off, I would tell you clearly anybody taking classified documents out of a secure setting uh, is a problem. And so, yes, I mean, uh, you know, what the previous administration did, not good, not right. And I think uh, that's worth calling out. I don't know enough about uh, the difference in the volume and the difference in cooperation. I think those are questions that we've got to have a committee ask. I guess at this point, I'm not willing to take the Biden administration's word for it. Let's ask a few follow up questions. We will be asking follow-up questions. Congressman Dusty Johnson, Johnson, thanks for sharing your time with us this morning and weighing in on all of these very important topics. Absolutely, thank you. That was really interesting. I feel like you made a lot of news there, especially on you know, McCarthy and those committees. Yeah, well, it's a big question of what they look like. Obviously, this is something that Republicans said. They said we there will be retaliation for members being kicked off, and now we are seeing that, and we'll see. It was interesting he said Kevin McCarthy should not abuse that, though. That's right. It's also interesting that they're not saying, well, you know, the people voted for George Santos. He's saying he needs to be held accountable. Yeah, he said he should not be on a committee until they they find out more information. If he was House Speaker, of course, he's not. It's up to Kevin McCarthy. All right, so this morning's number is $1.1 billion. Why? We'll tell you ahead. What went up must come down, right? That is the hope, at least, for mortgage rates in this market. What a roller coaster. Let's recap. Overall, mortgage rates skyrocketed, remaining at just under 6.5%. Meantime, sales plummeted. Sales of existing homes were down about 35% in November compared to a year ago. Housing prices, though, they just keep climbing up 40% nearly from the spring of 2020 to the spring of 22. As a new home buyer, I can attest to all of this <laughs> and the pain. Despite all the fluctuations, our next guests have made it their mission to give their clients their dream home. Here is a preview of season two of Married to Real Estate. Working with your spouse has its challenges. Am I in Come trouble? over here, you're in a little bit of trouble. But we wouldn't trade it for the world. Hey, it's looking good. Yeah, it's getting there, right? Yeah, babe. Mike and I are obsessed with finding value in homes. And sometimes you find the most value in the ugliest ones. <laughs> are you crying? You guys, this I is totally amazing. Crying. It's so open and yeah. bright. 
Kitchen. Egypt Sherrod and Mike Jackson are here now. I'm like, I love that dark kitchen because we just yeah. chose the pink color last night Did for you? our kitchen. What color? It's like the color of your sweater. Oh, good option. With oh, grass. Good option. So, so, in case you were wondering. So, so you have an aqua smoke kitchen. Yeah. That color is sort of, uh, that's what I've deemed it. Feel free to come over. Going deep into color names. I'm like, whatever, it looks green. That one. Talk in my language, babe. Okay. That time I put all the different white swaths on the on the on the walls, and my husband's like, I don't know, babe. They're all the same. But then yeah. you realize that there's like over 300 different shades of white. This is obviously a therapy session for Poppy. Right? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Are you billing yeah. her for this? It's been a whole journey. <laughs> Caitlin can tell you. But congratulations Thank on going you. on it. Right? So yeah, what is fun. up with this ho- housing market? Oh my goodness. Do you want to get cerebral, or do you guys want to have fun with it? Because Both. I choose fun. Right. Well, well, here's what I'll say. If you ask. 200 economists, what's happening right now in the housing market? They'll tell you 200 different answers. Nobody Mm -hmm. really knows. We don't have a crystal ball. If we did, we'd all be retired um, (laughs) at this point. But, But what I will say is if we look back 10 years to when we had the last recession, we know on average housing prices drop by almost 30%. Right now we're seeing about a 2.5% drop. Obviously, it's because of interest rates being so high. But these are not historic highs. This is really the norm. We just got spoiled over the last decade with interest rates. You say that again. I've been telling people that. It's It's like, this is not that bad. I mean, look, if you want to buy a home, it is tough. I don't want to, you know, downplay it. It's like 12%. But still, remember when our parents were buying homes, the interest rates? My parents bought their first home at 14.85%, and they were ecstatic because my grandparents bought it at historic highs of over 22% Mm -hmm. interest rate. So if you think this is high, well, you just imagine, you know, where they were. I say if the numbers make sense, if you can afford it, if it makes better sense to buy than to rent, then jump in. Because at the end of the day, you're still paying yourself versus paying somebody else. What about yes. when it comes to renovations, though, the price of lumber, labor, all of those things that people struggled with? What yeah. is that looking like now? That is extremely high as well. For instance, one piece of plywood that used to be $7.99 has now been fluctuating between $36 and $65. Wow. So that is decimating some of these quotes. You know, in their mindset, the average customer is thinking, okay, this is probably going to be a $30,000 job. And I have to burst that bubble and say, no, probably about 50, 60. Yeah. And they're like, why? So they start saying, you know what, I'll find somebody cheaper. And then everyone keeps giving them the same And then they price. come back yeah. like, I'm so sorry that I asked for, <laughs> for a requote. But, but I think we're all in this together. Yeah. That's what we have to accept is we're in an inflationary period. Everything's cyclical. This is not brand new, but we're going through it together. So just tighten your belt for a bit and hopefully it'll be over before it starts. Yeah. That's what we're hoping. Okay, well, can we talk mm-hmm. about your show? Because we're getting to season two, all mm-hmm. right? Season two, the success of season one on your show, 19 million viewers. Wow. It's all because of him. (laughs) They wanted to see him in a tight shirt. That's it. Listen, hold on. Hold on. I got no, let me stop. We'll take 19 million. (laughs) We are extremely grateful. Grateful. We appreciate it. We are blessed to even be a part of the experience, you know. Um, You know, people approach us on the street or in the market and they say, listen, you relate to me. Yeah. The transparency. We see my ourselves Our in you. Yeah. And that's what keeps us going. Although people also stop us in the market and want to tell me how to potty train. 
Oh, you know, that's, that's, that's what happens when you open your door to America. Everybody, especially um, the grandmoms, they come mm-hmm. up, baby, let me tell you how I potty train <laughs> Wait, wait, say child. that again. How do they do baby? it? Baby! <laughs> <laughs> but that's what sets your show apart, is that it is so much about your relationship and yes. your family. Yeah. And that's yeah. the other dynamic that people yeah. like. It's just, this is an amazing roller coaster to go mm-hmm. on right now in our careers and lives. It's obviously done immense things for our business, right. but also to be able to do what you love with the person you love. That's Aww. that's what... And you I wasn't talking about you. Vibe. I was talking about the kids. Oh. Yeah, <laughs> but you know what? You guys are very positive. So offer people at home, because people are, you know, a little depressed, I'm they sure, are. about yeah. the interest rates and whatever. Yeah, so give are. us some hope. You know, at, at the end of the day, what I'll say is, is this. Real estate, just like everything else, is cyclical. Mm-hmm. I don't have a crystal ball. I can't tell you when they're going to come down, but what I will tell you this is this. Rental rates are higher. So what you can do is keep your debt low, make sure you work on your credit, pay those bills on time, and those that you can't, work out a deal, you know, with the creditor as well. Mm -hmm. And just, number one, buckle up, okay? Don't spend on things that you don't have to. Right now, discretionary goods are something that, you know, you can sort of put on the side. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you, guys. It's good to yeah. see you. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you, you. Well. Yeah. By the way, I can party with you anytime on New Year's Eve. <laughs> Come here. <laughs> Thank you. Come on down to New Orleans. Poppy's going to bring you over to it's our house. It's a hop, skip, and a jump. Yes. Come to the kitchen. <laughs> oh, easily. Thank you, guys. We like to eat, so that's no problem. <laughs> Thanks so much. Mike Jackson, Egypt Shara, thank you. The new season of Married to Real Estate will premiere on Thursday at 9 p.m. Eastern on HGTV. Also, you can stream it the same day on Discovery+. Plus. Today's morning moment, two sisters in Boston helping cancer patients who are also women of color. They created this company from scratch to design wigs after Diane said she could not find a curly hair wig while she was fighting breast cancer. Diane and Pamela found a manufacturer. They did a few fittings to make sure the quality was good and perfect. They launched Coils to Locks. Coils to Locks is now in 15 hospitals and medical salons across the U.S. An amazing story there. And uh, thank you so much for joining us this morning. CNN Newsroom starts right after this break. That's it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. Quality sleep is essential. And that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.